This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Have you ever had a salesperson or a sales organization give you the awesome gift of a coffee mug with their logo on it? Or maybe you are a salesperson and you work for a sales organization and you provide your prospective clients or your dream clients with a coffee mug with your logo on it. I just met Andrew, the CEO of PFL at the Sales 2.0 conference in San Francisco, California, put on by my good friend Gerhard Schwantner, the CEO and publisher of Selling Power magazine. And Andrew took the time to show me a new app called Swag IQ. And Swag IQ is integrated into your salesforce.com and it's integrated into your existing sales workflows. And what Swag IQ does is it allows you as a salesperson to trigger a gift based on a prospect's behavior. That means when they move into a different stage of the sales cycle, you can go ahead and send something when they get there. So as a salesperson or a sales leader, you never have to worry about picking the gift, packing the box, and the entire fulfillment process happens offsite. And all you have to do is click the button or let it trigger automatically. But Swag IQ is interesting because it goes a lot further than just fulfillment. It bridges the gap between digital and physical by alerting the salesperson within minutes of the gift being delivered. And you can send one gift to a particular prospect if that contact is important to you, or you can schedule what's called a swag bomb to hit the entire team at your target account. And then if you're in major account sales and you're working on what I would call a dream client, everybody gets something all at the same time. Swag IQ tracks the engagement rate for you, it tracks the response rates, and it tracks the effectiveness so you know which gifts are working and where they're working. Swag IQ clients are seeing great results with one area that I think is super important to note here. It's opening doors. And that, in my opinion, is the most difficult thing we do in sales now is opening relationships. It's most difficult to get that first appointment. And Swag IQ could be something that helps you do that. So check them out at swagiq.com and see how you can begin using intelligent gifting solutions that integrate into your Salesforce app. Part two of a conversation with Ken Wilbur. Ken Wilbur is arguably the most important philosopher in the world today. He is the most widely translated academic writer in America, with 25 plus books translated into over 30 languages. He lives in Denver, Colorado, and he's a philosopher, an author, and a teacher. And one of the few people who can say that all of his major publications are still in print today. But what makes Ken especially relevant is that he's the originator or the developer of what would arguably be the very first true comprehensive or integrative philosophy called integral theory. And as Ken would tell you, he likes to think of it as one of the first believable world philosophies. And it incorporates cultural studies, anthropology, systems theory, developmental psychology, biology, spirituality, and it's being applied today in fields like ecology, sustainability, psychotherapy, 
psychiatry, education, business, medicine, politics, and even sports and art. So this is going to challenge you. It is going to stretch your thinking. It is going to stretch what you believe. And I promise it is going to be unlike anything you've heard before now. This is my friend, Ken Wilber, in the arena. Can you walk us through what the eight stages are and give people just a view of what it is? Because I don't think people recognize, they don't know that these exist. The infinite birth starts out in a stage of just fusion of its bodily self. It's identified with its material body. And it can't tell where the material body stops and the material environment begins. And in humans, that's about 500,000 years ago. And that was the, the transition from the great apes to actual human beings. It's the level that Maslow called physiological needs, because in that archaic stage are physiological needs for water, food, shelter, warmth, and so on. Basically, the only needs that's motivating somebody at that first stage. So it's not something that the average businessman is going to see very much of. The next stage is the infant will separate its body from the surrounding world, but its subjective self and the objective world aren't yet fully differentiated. And so somebody at this stage, stage two, will tend to confuse Any image of an object that they have in their mind, they'll confuse that with the real object itself. And so this is sometimes called animism, or it's Gebser's magic state. This remains in an adult. It is the formation of things like superstitious thinking that all of us have a little bit. That's that's traces of that stage left over in us. And it's often by itself just called an impulsive stage. Because the self is just identified with the body and its impulses, emotional sexuality, lust, and so on, and it just wants immediate gratification and so forth. So the next stage is the mind actually starts to emerge. And this is around three to five years in today's infant, and it was maybe 50,000 years ago in humanity's overall history. And as the mind emerges, it has what's called intentionality which is that it can make a word or a symbol or a sign, and that will represent something in the world. And it can tell the difference between the two. It can tell the difference between the sign that it uses, like the word for tree, and a real tree. But that's called intentionality. And it's essentially a type of will. And so as this capacity for will starts to develop, then you move out of the second stage of of the impulsive stage and into a stage of power. And this stage of power, spiral dynamics that you mentioned, which is based on what the values line looks like, calls this stage power gods. That is also called egocentric because it still doesn't really take the role of other. It's still within Carol Gilligan's selfish stages of development. And it really is a power stage. And now business people do run into this a fair amount. The next stage is where the individual, in today's world, we're at around age seven or so, the individual will learn to start taking the role of other. So that means that they cannot just see the world through their own eyes, 
but they can start to understand how the world might look to somebody other than them. They can actually take their role and tell you how they see things. So the simple experiment on this was something that Piaget did. He took a ball colored red on one side and green on the other, and he put it between himself and a young child. And he'd spin it several times so the child could see it's red on one side, green on the other. Then, putting the red side facing the child and the green side facing himself, he would say to the child, what color do you see? And the child would say red. He'd say, okay, then he'd turn the ball a few times so that the, maybe the green side's now facing the child and the red side is facing PJ. So he'd say to the child again, what color do you see? And the child would correct him to say green. Then he would say, what color am I seeing? And the child would say green. He couldn't get that Piaget was seeing red. He could not take the role of other. That's why the stage is so-called egocentric. He can only see the world through his perspective. Well, at age seven, you do the same thing, and the child will very correctly say, oh, I'm seeing red, you're seeing green. So that moves it out of egocentric into ethnocentric. So now its identity can expand to a whole group of people. And in more complex versions, it can, it can all of a sudden, it's like we are all brothers and sisters if we all believe in Jesus Christ. And so now I've extended my identity to all of my brothers and sisters. Of course, those who don't believe in Jesus Christ are bound for hell. And that's the problem with ethnocentric. It does expand identity to take a second person perspective. First person is the person speaking. Second person is the person spoken to. And the third person is the person or thing spoken about. So the first three stages can only take a first person point of view. They're all egocentric or selfish. This stage can take a second person perspective. It can take a viewpoint of a you. It can see what an other. It can put itself in somebody else's shoes and walk a mile in their shoes. So that's where we start to see human societies dramatically expand from mere tribes that had a caring capacity of around 30 to 50 people to small towns and, and, and eventually large cities of 50,000 people. Now, all of these were still ethnocentric. So they were still based on identity with a similar race or a similar ideology, a similar belief, a similar God, something that identified that group and made it different from other groups. And that's why what usually happened when one group met another group is warfare. And that's pretty much what humanity did its entire history, from when it first formed ethnocentric groups through the major empires and up into everything from the Holy Roman Empire to the dynasties in China, the dynasties in India, and so on. These are all ethnocentric. And the type of thinking here it's not magic, it's mythic. And mythic is pretty much what the average person would think it means. It means that you can you know, talk about something and it sounds like you're being fairly rational and so on, but you actually believe in a whole pantheon of anthropocentric god and goddess figures. Now that's to differentiate it from a higher mystical state where you feel that spirit is inhabiting the entire universe, for example, because that's not an anthropocentric viewpoint. You don't picture that spirit as being, for example, a gray-haired gentleman sitting on a throne in the sky. That's an anthropomorphic 
God figure. And that's what mythic thinking does. And mythic thinking is James Fowler, as he examined how these six to eight levels show up in the religious intelligence line. This is his stage, which is our stage four, his stage four. And he called it mythic literal, because that's what believers at this stage do. So if you're a Christian and you're at this mythic belongingless ethnocentric level, then you're a fundamentalist and you believe every word in the Bible is literally true. So Moses really did part the Red Sea. God really did rain locusts down the Egyptians. Christ really was born of a biological version and so on. The entire Bible is the literal word of God and cannot be questioned at all. And all fundamentalists, in no matter what religion, have that same belief structure. And it's all very ethnocentric because that fundamentalist religion's way is the only way to salvation. And that's one of the main problems now is that, again, with 70% of the world's population at, at ethnocentric, it means that they're also at mythic ethnocentric modes of cognition. And so to the extent that they have religious beliefs, they're going to be, my God is right, your God is wrong. And if you believe in your God, you're going to burn in hell. And the stronger versions of this will actually say, it's actually my job to either convert you or kill you if you don't change to the correct God. And that's why in the last 20 to 30 years, some 90% of the world's terrorist acts have been in the name of the one true God. And it also shows why religion itself is such a complex and confusing entity. Because the lower stages of religious intelligence, including magic and mythic, are just like that. And so they're the cause of the most suffering, the most torture, the most murder, and the most warfare in all of humanity's history. And yet you also notice that the same religion, that some of their proponents talk about love and compassion. And you go, how, how can that be when this religion is the cause of this much suffering. And the answer is because there are different levels of development with regard to that religion. When we get up to higher, if you're at a world-centric or cosmocentric level of development in the religious line, then you're going to indeed believe that all human beings, regardless of race, color, sex, or religion, are sons and daughters of God or are one with spirit. And so if you're at a world-centric or cosmocentric level of religious development, then you'll believe a Hindu has the same chances that you do as a Jew or as a Muslim or as a Christian of getting salvation or getting enlightenment or getting saved. And interestingly, Vatican II was the first time in the Catholic Church's history where the Catholic Church actually said that members of other religions have a similar chance at salvation as Christians do. That's the first time in their 2,000-year history where they had admitted that, and that showed that they'd moved themselves from an ethnocentric to a world-centric level of development. And that's what we need, of course, all of the world's religions to do. World-centric levels of religion are almost entirely different things from ethnocentric or let alone egocentric levels of development. So at an egocentric level, 
thinks that he and he alone is Jesus Christ. And our psychiatric wars are full of them. <laughs> somebody ethnocentric thinks that only somebody who believes in my version of Christianity and accepts Jesus as his personal savior can be saved. Somebody at world-centric believes all human beings, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed, have an equal chance at, at salvation. And it simply depends upon how their own spiritual growth and development. So these levels are incredibly important to take into account. And here I'll just mention again that medication won't change those levels. You can be at a traditionally ultimate unity consciousness or traditionally enlightened and still be at an ethnocentric level of development. And again, as I said, all, all you have to do is look at Zen at war. Or, or even more so, you can take these great mystical traditions themselves all grew up in cultures that were ethnocentric. They all were patriarchal, which meant they were sexist. They all had slaves, which meant they were racist. Their enlightenment didn't get rid of any of that because it doesn't affect growing up. It only affects waking up. And those are two entirely different dimensions. So that's very important. So moving out of ethnocentric to when a person can actually take a universal perspective and not just an ethnocentric perspective, but identify with all humans, then that's Gilligan's universal care. And it's also where individuality emerges out of this previous stage of conformity. At the previous mythic ethnocentric stage, it's very important that you do exactly what your group says, because otherwise you're breaking the word of God and you'll be excommunicated or burned alive forever or be beheaded, not pleasant stuff. And so you did not identify with all humans equally. But with the coming of this stage of development historically, it showed up primarily with the Western Enlightenment. Now, the Western Enlightenment brought a lot of problems and I'm not going to deny that, but it also brought some very positive things. And one of them was a world-centric, universal morality, where all people are treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. The feminist movement started at that time. Slaves were freed at that time. And so this was a very powerful movement. And it also, in, in unleashing individuality, it increases individual drives. And so this is the level that Maslow called self-esteem and the level that Graves and Spiral Dynamics would refer to as achievement. So it's also the level that you have progress, that you introduce things like profit and merit and excellence. These are all individual accomplishments. And this is what you see at this stage of development. So this is very different from the previous conformist stage where you don't want to stand out at all. Now, all of a sudden, you have individual drives and motivations. And of course, the business marketing changes dramatically from you want to fit in and don't cause waves to you want to stand out. You want to be different. Get this product. So this is a very different stage. It's one of the reasons that as Maslow tracked it, it was moving from belongingness or conformity to what he called self-esteem or achievement, accomplishment, merit. And of course, this is when the idea of progress itself first entered world history. And that was with the Western Enlightenment. 
So this is a this is a major stage of development because it also marks the move from mythic thinking to a type of actual rationality, technically called formal operational thinking. And so this is why at exactly this time, starting around 16, 1700, we see the emergence almost simultaneously of all the modern sciences. So we're moving from mythic thinking, which basically believes in whatever it is that's written down in, in a holy book, because that's the word of God, to rational thinking, where it believes whatever there's actual evidence or proof for. So the experimental method becomes the way we get truth at this stage, at this fifth stage. So that's why we see the emergence of modern physics, modern chemistry, modern astronomy, modern geology, and all of that replaces previous things, like alchemy is replaced by chemistry, astrology is replaced by astronomy. All of those were mythic modes of thinking moved to rational modes of thinking. And that was a dramatic change, so much so that the values coming from the previous religious fundamentalist level are, are to this day still often called traditional values. And traditional values we see in, for example, the far right wing of the Republican Party is a fundamentalist religious value structure, believes in family values, believes in patriotism, tends also to be very sexist. It's also pretty racist, and it's ethnocentric, versus the more liberal modes, which are actually referred to as, as modernity or modern values. And we still kind of know what it means to say, that's a modern woman, or that guy's got a lot of modern values. And it means being released from religious conformist strictures and being turned open to a more rational and experiential mode of belief and endeavor. And so that, that's a very important stage, and it's probably the leading edge stage where the center of gravity of most Western cultures is at that fifth rational stage, achievement stage, self-esteem stage, individuality stage. And most business motives come out of that stage of development. The vast majority of people in business today, probably 50, 60 percent of them are at that stage of development. And so profit and excellence and merit and accomplishment and achievement all have enormous amount of meaning to somebody at that stage. All those terms are almost meaningless at every earlier stage. Would that be representative of the overall population on earth that 50% or 60% of at least Western nations are at stage five? Well, in a sense, yes. And here you have to get a little bit careful because each of the multiple intelligences, although they're going through the same levels, each of them are doing so at a different rate. And so you can scale how developed you are in each of your dozen intelligences and you'll find dramatic differences. You might even still be at zero in musical intelligence. But cognitive intelligence tends to be the one that's necessary but not sufficient for the others. So it tends to be the leading intelligence in most people. And it's usually a stage or two ahead of the next intelligence, such as an interpersonal intelligence. And that tends to be a half stage or two ahead of emotional 
intelligence, and that tends to be a little bit ahead of moral intelligence. So when I previously said 70% of the world's population was the ethnocentric or lower, I'm talking about the average or what we call the center of gravity of a human being. And when I say about 50% is at rational achievement self-esteem, that's more in cognitive. So it'll vary a little bit depending on exactly which intelligence you're pointing out. But the center of gravity, even in Americans, Robert Keegan estimates that three out of five Americans have not reached the modern rational self-esteem cognitive level of development. He's going to come on the podcast in September, so we'll ask him about that. Yeah. So that's 60%. Yeah. Have not. In other words, they're ethnocentric or lower. But the point is different professions tend to draw people at different levels in different lines. And business is drawing people that have a cognitive development at least at this rational level five or higher. And they have a values line that's at that level five or higher, particularly focuses at that level five. The moral development can be, and in many cases is, back at level three or egocentric or power. A recent poll among Wall Street business leaders showed that close to 80% said that they were willing to be considerably immoral if it upped their quarterly statements. So that's a clear example of what we call levels and lines, being at different levels in different lines. These business leaders are quite high in cognitive values lines and quite low in moral. I want you to get us through six, but before I do, so you can have somebody whose cognitive level is at five, so they're well-developed there, but their moral level is power, so it's red or level three. And then you can, and that could be in any structure, though, not just business. That could be in politics. Nazi doctors. Yeah, so it it could show up in horrible ways if they have access to a very high level of intelligent thinking, but then have a moral center that's very, very low and willing to do almost anything to achieve their power goals. Absolutely. So it's the ego that's in the way. Absolutely. Okay. And so what we have at this level five is the capacity to take a third person perspective. And that usually means that you can stand back, get some distance. That's why you can actually introspect. You can be aware of yourself. That's why self-esteem needs arise here. And that's why hypothetical deductive reasoning arises. And that's why science arises. These are all third person objective types of thinking. But you can actually Each stage of development tends to introduce yet another perspective. So when we get to the next stage, stage six, it can actually take a fourth person perspective. Now, all we really need to know about that is that means that a fourth person perspective can reflect on a third person perspective. It can be aware of a third person perspective. So that means when you reach this fourth person stage of development, that you can reflect on things like science. You can reflect on worldviews in general. You can reflect on systems that claim to be universal. And you can look at them and you can, and you can compare them with each other and start to get some sense about them. You can look at one culture and compare it with another culture. And because of that, instead of just having sort of one universal truth, like a universal science, you start to come up with a multiple 
multiplicity, a multitude of different perspectives and different truths. So this stage is often called pluralistic, which just means a multitude of different truths. Graves actually called it the extreme version of pluralism, which is relativism. This stage examines so many different kinds of truths. It's also called multiculturalism because it maintains that every culture has its own truths and there are no universal truths at all. So it denies big pictures. It denies what it calls meta-narratives. And it comes up, every truth is relative. And this is actually referred to because it's the stage that comes after modernity or modernism. This stage is often called postmodernism. And indeed, it's the most recent large-scale stage that has emerged. And it emerged in the 60s. It was what the boomers brought. And so the whole revolution of the 60s, down with the system and fight the system and what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and nobody can tell me what to do and everybody has to you know, do your own thing and all of that was everything is relative. There are no absolute truths that you have to follow. Nothing constrains you. You do whatever the hell you want because there are no universal truths. And so science is no more true than poetry. And there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of PhD theses written on that. The names of Derrida and Foucault became almost household terms. Deconstruction actually entered the English language. So what does deconstruction do? It tears down all universal systems. It deconstructs them until they're simply worthless, basically. They have no value at all. And that's the one problem with postmodernism and this pluralistic, relativistic multiculturalism is that when every value is equally the same, then no value is worth anything. They're all completely meaningless because no value has value. I mean, something has value when it's better than something. But according to postmodernism, nothing is better than anything. There is nothing that's superior to anything else in the world. Now, the contradiction in postmodernism is that it believes its truths are superior to all the alternatives. So its truths are true for all cultures at all times in all places. Those are absolute universal truths. But it says those aren't possible. So it's it's saying it's universally true. There's no universal truth. (laughs) And this is an inherent contradiction in this stage. It's actually called the performative contradiction because it's doing what it says can't be done. So it's performing a contradiction. And that's eventually what brought postmodernism down. Even though postmodernism, as one of its leading proponents said, postmodernism is as dead as the system can become. Nobody knows what's coming next. And the reason is what's coming next is level seven. And that's the first of what are called second tier values. And that means in some sense they're different from the first six levels that are all called first tier. So what's this difference? Why is it so different that it gets an entire tier to itself? Well, the reason is each first tier stage. Now, by the way, all of these stages still remain in existence. And everybody is born at stage one. And no matter what line they're in, they have to go through all of these stages. And in that order. So those stages are fixed. You can't skip them and you can't reverse them. And you can't alter them with social conditioning. 
And that's accepted by all developmentalists. Let me stop you there for one second before we get to Intergo and, and ask just right. two quick questions. So you can't skip stages. So when a country like the United States tries to pull up another country and skip over levels, what we're doing is trying to go too far too fast, and everybody has to get through the stage between where they are and where they're going to go, no matter what. Yeah, that doesn't work, does it? I mean, we're constantly dumping level five and level six democratic and humanitarian values onto stage three power-driven cultures. And all we get is the free election of the next military oppressor. Yeah. And we're frustrated and we're frustrating them because they're they're not there yet. Is that also true? Can we relate that to to a culture in a business? If the center of gravity, because of the leadership, because of the culture, because of all the other factors in all four quadrants is set lower, do you still have to go up stages together? Well, here's the thing. Let's say the speed limit on the highway is 70 miles an hour, and then for various complex political and economic reasons, as happened a decade or so ago, it's lowered to 55 miles an hour. Now, you can be at a quite low stage of development. You can be at at, at stage two or stage three, and you can understand that change. You can just, okay, now it's 55 miles an hour, and you can alter your behavior according to that. Even though you can't explain all the political and economic reasons that go behind it, those are probably, most of those, you have to be at stage five or stage six to fully understand. But you you don't have to understand them to alter your behavior according to what's demanded of you. And so what we see in companies is that companies indeed have a culture. And the culture is often made up of people at several different levels of development. And they'll often, at the very least, they'll congregate to different departments in that company. So somebody on an assembly line will often be at level four, at that simple ethnocentric conformist level. It's also called concrete operational thinking because they can just do robotic, repetitive work and they don't have to have any great cognitive, rational, hypothetical, deductive, scientific thinking capacities. So you'll often find people on the floor doing that kind of job at a cognitive operational stage four level of development. Somebody who's in management will often be at stage five. They're at that standard business, rational, progress, excellence, uh, achievement level of success. Somebody in human relations will be at that level six. Because at that level six, remember, the person has a sense that nobody's Absolutely right or absolutely wrong. So everybody has to be sort of met and allowed their own truth. So if they're healthy and it's stage six, they're very, very good with interacting with people because they really believe that everybody has their own truth and you can't really tell somebody what's right or what's wrong. Somebody at stage five is not going to be so good with human relations. They're going to have very definite ideas about what's right and what's wrong and how to achieve it and how not to achieve it. Did you follow the rules or not follow the rules? And level five divides the world into winners and losers. And if you've got a complaint, you're a loser. So what am I doing here helping you? But somebody at stage six is there are no winners and losers. I mean, at stage six, athletic competitions don't even have gold stars or gold medals. Everybody gets the same medal just for showing up. Yeah. I'm thinking about in a business, you've got a, a stage six human resources department and, and they're pluralistic and they're, they're very caring and they're, they're very, I guess, concerned about individuals, regardless of where that individual is. But then you might right. have a five rational manager 
that also in the moral line is a level three in their their power. So this is where we see the clash that can happen in a business that can can cause disruption in the business and things that happen that have to be sorted out because you have people at different levels with a different set of values at different levels through the lines. So you've got a whole bunch of ways that we can all clash together. Yeah, and those can be nightmares. And again, the problem is because you can't see these interior levels and lines by introspecting, nobody knows they're there unless they've actually studied some of these maps. And since that's very rare, then people just don't know they're there. So they don't know the real reason that these problems are occurring. And so they'll never actually address it. It'll be through hit and miss. And if they've got this one manager who's level three, red, power driven, you know, nutcase in human relations, stage six department, they might just say, okay, well, look, you're out. And then they'll look for people who've applied for the job. And mostly people that will actually apply for a job like that are people that are at that stage of development because that's the values they like. They like the idea of interacting with people and helping people and so on. So that's what they'll apply for. They won't apply for a marketing job, for example, but they will apply for that. And so you'll end up picking one of them. And by luck, you happen to get somebody at the right stage for the right job. Much better if in your hiring practices, you actually give tests and find out where people are and then match them up at least on, on those scales. So you've got that working for you. And of course, there are other scales you want to keep in mind as well. And the integral map includes a fair number of others. But at least you want to get some of these really basic things in place you, because these are hugely powerful. I'm going to ask you to talk about integral for just one minute. I just think I want to touch really quickly on the postmodern deconstruction pluralistic sure. level six. Sure. Because this move towards holarchy with companies like Zappa, where they're just eliminating all hierarchies, what it looks like to me is this deconstruction, all hierarchies are bad Yep. because they're all dominator hierarchies. It's a pure level six culture. But not all hierarchies are dominator hierarchies. There are That's correct. actualization and growth hierarchies, and there are companies who are really good at taking care of people and growing people's capabilities and helping them develop. And that's a healthy hierarchy. So in yep. the view of, of my studies of, of your work and just looking at this, the mistake that we're making when we're thinking about this, and I, I don't think that the holarchy is a bad idea. I mean, reading enough about it, it's a stage that we're going to go through and we're going to start experimenting with what different models look like as we develop. But right. this idea of you have to eliminate all hierarchies maybe doesn't make sense unless you're saying we have to eliminate the dominator part of the hierarchy and not the actualization part. Yeah, and the problem is there are, if you take all the hierarchies that are operating at this moment in the world, in human beings and outside of them, 80% of them are growth hierarchies. And so if you just say all hierarchies are bad, like the feminists did and the postmodernists did, you throw out all forms of growth. Because all forms of growth that we're aware of, that actually change in sequences of increasing complexity and quality and, and learning. All of those are growth hierarchies, all of them, in every major intelligence. So when you throw those out, you throw out all forms of growth entirely. So as a quick example, what did the feminists do? The feminists, and you hear this all the time, that what this world needs, because it's patriarchal, is we need more feminine values. And that's 
That's it. So all you have to do is be a woman, and that's what this culture needs. But that's not what this culture needs. As Gilligan showed, we do not need more women at stage one and stage two female moral development. That's egocentric and ethnocentric. That's selfish, racist, and sexist women. We don't need those. Those are what we don't need. We need women at stage three and stage four. But the feminists don't know that. So they are completely bereft of what a woman actually has to do to actually help culture. As it is now, the majority of them, again, three out of five, according to Keegan, are not helping. They're racist, they're sexist, they're ethnocentric, and they're hurting culture. They're not helping. And yet they actually think they're helping, so they're, they're duplicitous on top of it. It's a nightmare. And that's what postmodernism left us with. And all that really does is throw a person back to whatever they want. In other words, it, it increases narcissism. And so what we found as the boomers went in at stage six and they redid the education system, and they did, they redid the entire education system to get rid of rankings. Everybody gets a gold star. Everybody's equally special. They essentially increased narcissism, thinking it was a self-esteem movement. And what recent studies have shown, the most recent graduating class under this system of self-esteem has more narcissism than any class since testing was started. And it's actually two to three times more narcissism than their parents. And their parents were the me generation, for heaven's sake. So that's what happens when you toss out all hierarchies. You get rid of dominator hierarchies, and you get rid of growth hierarchies, and you get rid of growth entirely. And that leaves you with nihilism in values and narcissism psychologically. Nihilism and narcissism are what postmodernism has left us with. It's a nightmare. I'm going to pause this at Integral and ask you to come back and explain Integral at another time, because in the nature of time, I want to ask you a couple other questions, and I want to get into something that's really, I think, practical. And I've watched a video of you in a meditative state with, I would call it, and I don't mean this derogatory, sort of a crude EEG. Yeah. And I've watched you take and zero out your brainwaves, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes so people can watch this, because right. it's, it's really interesting to watch. Right. And you shouldn't be able to do that, to, to, to go to zero on all brainwaves at the same exact time in whatever kind of state you're in. And it's really interesting that you meditated enough to do that. But there's a big movement right now for mindfulness, and a lot of people are picking up meditation apps and and learning meditation. But from your view, somebody who spent a lot of time really, really working in these states of consciousness – what right. are the real practical values if what you would recommend for someone when it comes to meditation? What are the practical values as a human being of meditation? Right. Well, let me say about that videotape. That was what's called a mind mirror, and it was being promoted at the time by a woman named Anna Wise. I think it's still uh, around and has continued to work on the machine. And it was invented by, I think, a guy named Maxwell Cade, something like that. And it was a fairly effective, although very simple, EEG machine, and it was divided into left hemisphere and right hemisphere, and then the four main brain waves. The lowest levels it showed were delta, and then theta. Delta traditionally is deep dreamless sleep. 
then beta, which is traditionally sleep of dreams, and then alpha, which is waking, relaxed awareness, and then beta, which is waking, intense awareness. And what this thing shows is it was the, actually the first video I made of me using the machine. And I just spent two hours putting the thing together. And so when I first hook up, what you first see on the video screen is a lot of left hemisphere thinking. Beta and alpha are very high because I've been doing all this linear rational thinking, putting this darn thing together. And there's very little activity on the right side, the right hemisphere. What you do notice, though, is that both of the delta bands are maximum. And delta is what you're only supposed to get in deep dream of sleep. I had been meditating for a very, very long time. And one of the things you do in the meditative state, we can talk about this in a minute, is get into states of just pure witnessing, where there's no judgment, no condemnation, no identification, just a pure awareness and you don't identify with the contents of awareness at all. You're just identified with pure awareness itself, the pure witnessing state. And this is actually the fourth of the five major states in the meditative traditions. It's called Turiya. And Turiya actually is just Sanskrit for fourth because it's the fourth state after the first three, which are waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. And then the fourth is pure witnessing that also starts in deep sleep and can continue through waking and dreaming states as well. And so because I was in that or had access to that, that's why these delta states were maximum. And that simply won't happen to somebody who hasn't done that kind of practice for, for a long time. I've been doing it for about 20 years by then. And so then I, I go into a type of meditation that I had taught myself over the years, which is similar to what's called Nervi Kalpa Samadhi. Nervi Kalpa means without any content of consciousness. It's just pure, unmanifest awareness itself. But I even sort of shifted that a bit because as I go into that state where all content stops and all objects of consciousness cease, then what you see in, in all of the higher brainwaves, Delta just stays max because I'm still witnessing. But all theta waves, all alpha waves, and all beta waves, in a very shocking two or three seconds, they all flatline. All of them, literally, top to bottom, go to zero. That's the part of it that gets your attention, is the speed with which all of the brainwaves stop. For most of us, with what you know, the Buddhists would call monkey mind, you know, yeah. we're scattered all the time, to watch yeah. that just collapse, which is really what it looks like, it just collapses, yeah. is, is shocking. Exactly. Now, let me say a few things about the machine itself. First of all, my brain waves aren't actually dead. They're just at a very, very low level. So low level that this machine, which is fairly sensitive, but not, you know, totally, can't register them. So if you actually, I was on a, a more sensitive machine, and, and by the way, this machine has two levels of sensitivity. And a lot of people see that and say, oh, you didn't have it on the highest sensitivity. Well, I did. It was on the very highest sensitivity that this machine could register. And I actually ended up talking to Anna Wise about this. And she said, well, that's a very real state. It's one that we don't see. But she said, from all the parameters you've described, then that's actually happening. And all that meant was that I had dramatically reduced all brainwave activity across most of the, of the regions of my brain to, to very, very low levels. And that had come, as I said, from some 20 years 
of practicing and being able to subjectively notice you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, when there was any sort of activity at all, and then what types of intention one could take to reduce that. And in terms of a state that I would want to teach somebody, I'm not even sure how much I would want to do that. It's been very useful for me. But often states that are nervy capital will show things like a moderate amount of theta activity and a moderate amount of alpha activity, for example. So most meditative states, even of unmanifest states, tend to show some kind of brainwave activity because certain parts of the brain are active as other parts of the brain go quiet. But this is just, like I say, a particular state that I taught myself over several decades to get into. And it's the first state I get into naturally. Whenever I close my eyes, there's actually shots later on that video. I'm not sure if the one you have shows it, where I continue to stay in that state, even as I'm looking at a book, for example. But it's not just kind of a second nature for me. It's just something that I've gotten into. It involves a sense of absolute oneness with everything. And in most cases, that's a pure abyss or pure emptiness because nothing is arising. But even if something arises, it simply arises as a texture of that state. And that's what I am. So the entire universe is arising within me. It's arising as me. I am that. I am everything that's arising moment to moment. And that's traditionally an ultimate unity consciousness state, which is the fifth state called Turiatita which means beyond Turiya, or beyond the fourth. And that's a state of unity consciousness or non-duality where emptiness and form are not two. And that means consciousness and all objects arising in consciousness are not two or are felt as one. The Tibetans call it a state of one taste. Everything has the same taste. Uh, that taste is divine or ultimate or spirit, but it doesn't have any qualities at all. It's radically free of all of that. And that's at least a variation on what mindfulness itself, the original intent of mindfulness, which is almost never mentioned, strangely, as mindfulness is now taught in the West. In the West, mindfulness is taught to do things like for lowering blood pressure, reducing anxiety, helping with sleep problems and insomnia, reducing depression with weight control measures and a variety of health benefits. And there are literally thousands of studies demonstrating that mindfulness pain reduction, mindfulness will do all of that. It's a psychotechnology of consciousness transformation that has a profound overall effect on the health and well-being. Even if in a non-spiritual way, because the way that you, you meditate, those are spiritual practices. But even for somebody who wasn't spiritual, they would still get practical benefits? Yes, absolutely. Because this, the path of waking up, unlike the path of growing up, and this is the differences between religions and the path of growing up, which tend to be, to come mostly from the magic and mythic levels. And those are all mental ideas. They're belief systems. So they're actual ideas that you hold in mind. They're beliefs that you accept. And if you accept those beliefs, then you're going to get rewarded 
by living eternally in heaven or some such positive reward. If it's in the Eastern traditions and you're at that mythic level, then it's reincarnation in a heaven realm or a happier reincarnation when you're reborn next time and so on. And waking up, which is what mindfulness was created as, that's not a matter of belief structures. It's actually a matter of dropping beliefs and dropping labeling and dropping naming and just bringing a pure awareness to the moment, moment by moment, and simply being aware of whatever's arising with no judgment, uh, no identification, no condemnation at all, just a pure, sometimes called mirror mind. And that's right, just like a mirror, you just simply reflect everything that's arising, everything, literally. Would a mindfulness type of meditation, because if you are in a state of awareness and you're dropping the concepts and the judgment and, and all of that, would that help develop the moral line? Well, here's the problem. Yes and no. And it depends on, we talked about those four quadrants and about how the individual quadrants of, of I, the interior individual consciousness, and it, the exterior organism, are inseparably part of their collectives. So all eyes arise in groups of we. Each it arises in systems of its. When it comes to humans, we call the lower left culture, the cultural dimension. That's the interior of the collective. And the lower right, we call the social dimension. That's the human collective looked at from the exterior at an objective scientific systems view. And the we dimension is the same human collective looked at from within. So you can know what it's like to be an American from within, but you have to actually be an American. You can know what it's like to be a Russian only from without, only by description. To know what it's like to be a Russian from within, you actually have to move to Russia and become a member of that culture. Then you'll experience that we. As it is now, you'll only know it as a group of its, because you can only see it as, as an object. You're not really a member of it as a, as a subject. So if you are in a culture that takes a mystical experience, if you're in, for example, the Middle Ages in Europe, and you have a mystical experience of being one with Christ, or actually in this, with the Sufis, Muslim mystics call the supreme identity, which is where your individuality and ultimate spirit are one. And that's the ultimate mystical goal. And if you have an experience of that as a peak experience, as a temporary experience of oneness with the ultimate divine, and you're in a culture where the Spanish Inquisition is dominant, and if the Spanish Inquisition finds out that you make that claim, they will torture you and then kill you because the dogma is so intense that only Jesus Christ is one with God. And he happened to simply be one of many people that had that experience, but for various mythic reasons, he got kicked upstairs and made the only one to have that experience. And so the mystics in most of the theistic traditions have to walk a very, very fine line. They're allowed to commune with God, but they're not allowed to be one with God. And so you have to tiptoe very, very carefully. St. John the Cross, St. Teresa, they tiptoed. Meister Eckhart stepped over the line 
And so he had his species condemned by the Catholic Church, but not him. So they didn't burn him at the stake. Giordano Bruno did go too far, and he got burned at the stake. So if you have a mystical experience there, you're likely to interpret it. And this is where those structures of growing up come in. Structures will determine how you interpret your experience. It's a meditative experience, a spiritual experience, or an ordinary watching the sun go down experience, or eating cake, or listening to music. The structures interpret what stage you're at in those eight stages we were talking about. That will determine how you interpret your experience. And so you interpret it at a stage four level. You'll interpret it the way your culture tells you to, which is, oh, I had an experience, and God was communing with me. And I was communing with God. And that's how you'll actually experience it. That won't increase your stage of growing up. That will reinforce the stage you're at. And so if in a four-quadrant diagram, you're in an environment or a culture that prohibits strongly those kinds of experiences, it won't tend to help. You'll tend to interpret it according to whatever dogmatic beliefs you happen to already have. If on the other hand, you're in an environment that encourages free thinking. If you're at an American university and you have an experience of one of these very high states of consciousness in waking up, if you meditate once or twice a day for four years, you will increase the stages of growth by anywhere between one and two stages in almost any line that you're exercising. And that's important because there's been no technique demonstrated to move an adult, this means somebody over age 25, to move an adult the most any technique has been demonstrated to move adults vertically in development, moves them an average of 0.25 stages, a fourth of a stage. It's extremely hard to get adults to transform upward. It can be done if you work at it, and we're getting better at it all the time. But on average, no technique has been demonstrated to do so except meditation. And on average, over a four-year period, if you meditate regularly, it will move you an average of one to two stages. What about somebody with a different faith, like contemplative prayer or something like that? If contemplative prayer it depends on what state of consciousness it gets you into. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So if contemplative prayer and the way, for example, centering prayer by Father Thomas Keating does, it does do this. If it gets you out of waking, dreaming, deep sleep into Turiya witnessing or Turiya Tita unity consciousness, then that, no matter how you got into it, and some people get in it jogging, some people get in it playing sports. Most people get into it by contemplation or meditation. Those are mostly the ways that it, that it happens. But any way that you get into it on a regular basis will have a tendency to move you a stage or two in any line that's active in you at that time. So that's a very important factor. But the other, the other factor is it doesn't necessarily do that. And it can also take quite a long amount of time. This average, in order to budge up a stage two, was an average of four years. So the point is that you can have those waking up experiences and 
they either don't affect growing up or they do have an effect on it, but it's fairly slow and a drawn out process. You're not going to go to a weekend seminar. And even though in that weekend seminar, you absolutely can have a state experience of waking up. State experiences can be peak experienced at any stage of development. All of them can. So you can go all the way to the fifth and highest state of ultimate unity consciousness. And you can do that. You can be taught that in an hour. And effectively, there are at least two practices that I'm aware of that get about 95% of people into ultimate unity state within an hour. And so it definitely can be done. And those are, by the way, Kempo Roshi's Big Mind Process and Junpo Roshi's Mondo Zen. And there's also a technique called Parallel Processing by Scott Ford. And you can actually do that with something like a tennis ball or a racquetball. Those three have a higher than 90% success rate of getting somebody into one of those states within an but, hour. But it won't have you that You can't do that impact. with structures. You absolutely can't do yeah. that with structures. You have to think of a structure as like learning to be a brain surgeon. That's about how long it takes to put a structure in. They're learned. It takes that kind of time. And if you're not specifically trying to do it, even if you're meditating, you still might not move it at all. And that's why we're teaching mindfulness largely for these side benefits, which will occur, including what mindfulness was originally taught as. Mindfulness originally wasn't taught at all to relieve depression or increase sleep or alleviate anxiety or any of those things. It was taught as a way to get you into nervi kalpa samadhi, into nirvana which is a state similar to deep, dreamless sleep, a state of pure, infinite consciousness without an object arising at all. And in that pure state, you have no pain, no suffering, no desire. And we saw, for example, during the Vietnam War, we saw Vietnamese monks get in that nervi kalpa state, that state of nirvana, and set themselves on fire and not flinch as they burn to death. That was nirvana. That's what mindfulness was designed to do. And that's what it will do. So along the way, it will do all those other things. It will alleviate anxiety, it will alleviate depression, etc. The major reason most teachers of mindfulness don't mention the spiritual aspects of mindfulness is that spirituality in the Western world is mostly known in the form that comes from the mythic stage of growing up. And that's to higher stages of growing up, to the fifth stage rational and sixth stage pluralistic, let alone seventh stage integral, is simply laughable. I mean, that kind of mythic literal religion is just laughed at. It's not taken seriously. Jehovah's no more real than Zeus or Apollo. I mean, they just don't take it seriously at all. But that's almost the only kind of spirituality the Western world has, is that mythic, literal, ethnocentric, Bible-thumping spirituality. And so religion has simply got a bad name in general. And so people don't usually even mention it when they're teaching mindfulness, because most people don't know about waking up spirituality, which is about how to, how to become one with the entire 
universe. When I think also they don't want to conflict with someone's religious beliefs. So if if we don't have to touch that subject, we can still get the benefits without. Well, that's exactly right. And you remember TM used to go out of its way to say, "No, you can believe whatever you want. We don't. Doesn't matter." And they were right. It didn't because they were working on the waking up scale, not the growing up spiritual intelligence scale. I'm going to stop us here, but I want to thank you so much for your time. And this is a lot for people to take in. So I'm going to ask you to come back at some time in the future and we'll talk more about how to grow up faster. Sure. All right. Thanks so much, Ken. Okay, buddy. That was Ken Wilbur. And you're going to need some time to recover from all that. I want to send you out to look at his work. Go to IntegralLife.com to check out Ken and his work. And also go to Audible and pick up the book Cosmic Consciousness, which the cosmic is spelled with a K. And it's a 12-hour interview by Tammy Simon, who interviewed Ken over the course of 12 hours. And you'll get much more content like this if it's something that interests you. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com and youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe to the YouTube channel. And when you go visit me at the blog, sign up for the newsletter. Or if you want a bribe to join the newsletter, go to howtoplanasalescall.com where you can get a free four video training module on what you need to do to be successful when you're face to face with your dream client. If that's not enough, go to themodelsalesweek.com where you will find a nine video module and a workbook you can use to plan your week for success in sales and make sure that you crush your number. Again, I'm Anthony Anarino. I'm your host and I will see you next time right here in the arena. My new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, will be released by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016, and it will be available at bookstores everywhere. But I don't want you to go to the bookstores or Amazon.com and order that book quite yet. What I want to recommend you do is go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. And this is a pre-order site that's going to allow you to collect bonuses for having ordered the book early and ordering it through this site. Even if you only buy one book, there is a bonus bonus package available for you. In this case, it is a workbook that allows you to apply the core lessons of the 17 core chapters to your own work. So maybe you need to work on self-discipline, or maybe you need to work on resourcefulness, or maybe you need to work on prospecting. You can go through the workbook exercises and immediately improve the results that you're producing in those areas. But there's more. If you are a sales leader and you want to provide this book to your team, which I recommend, you can get additional bonuses. For an order of 10 books, you can get 17 training videos that allow you to use those videos for team meetings and align your team around whatever initiatives you want. Maybe it's closing right now, or maybe it's business acumen. Whatever the chapter is that relates to a gap that your team needs to close, you're going to find some resources there in the workbook and in the videos that allow you to notch your team up. And then if you want to get insane, there are massive bulk buys available to you. If you buy a thousand books, I'm going to do a keynote for you. And for some lucky buyer who orders that many books, you're going to get a keynote from me that I will also include Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, and Mike Weinberg as speakers at your sales kickoff event. So go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. That is preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Pick up a copy of the book now. It will be delivered to you in the middle of October and pick up the bonuses.
Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.